0: This is real estate rookie show number 55.
1: We didn't even really know it, but we started house hacking. We would get renters and we'd be like, okay, we need to pay for the backyard. We need sod and we need a patio and we need sprinkler system. We're like, let's rent out one of those four bedrooms. So we got a renter.
0: My name is Ashley Care and I am here with my co-host Tony Robinson. And today we have on Tyler Madden, who is going to share with us his Madden plan.
2: (laughs) Tyler was a great guest, right? But I think what's more important before we get into Tyler, can we talk about the fact that we're matching today? So you guys, please go watch us on YouTube. (laughs) Ashley (laughs) and I are, are twins today. There's only about like a 12 inch difference in height between us. But other than that, we look like twins right now.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's really funny too. This is a great episode to watch on YouTube because Tyler's background is amazing. You think it's like (laughs) a green screen. It's so beautiful. So you'll hear him talk about the renovation that he did in the property that he's living in now. And like we get 40 minutes into the episode and he starts dropping these oh, by the way, I did this. Oh, by the way, this happened. It's like, okay, we're 40 minutes in. Those are like top of the line stories to hook people Mm, into that.
2: Totally. He created a new strategy and we talked about like, I've never even heard an investor do this, but he combined like a house hack with a live-in flip where he was using the house hack to help fund the flip. So really, really cool and interesting story. And I think- he also does a really good job of the mindset piece and talking about how he uses affirmations and his network to really kind of fuel his real estate investing. So, so many good gems from Tyler's interview today. Are current interest rates making you depressed about cash flow? What if it didn't have to be that way? Rent to Retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed.
4: Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: Tyler, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to start off just telling everyone a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, so I am Tyler Madden. 34 years old, and I am a general contractor, not necessarily by intention, though. It's a path that I got to in a roundabout kind of way, not a very linear story, but I went to college to become a doctor. I got a biology and a chemistry degree, and after that, I went into what everyone does when they graduate, they go into restaurants. So I went into restaurants and I started as a server and started experiencing growth in the company. And I enjoyed that growth. And I got to the point where I turned into a bartender, turned into a manager, and then I hit a ceiling and realized that that growth was not going to happen anymore. I capped out and I couldn't continue that growth. So I walked away from that, just knowing that I didn't want to be tied into anything, but not really identifying that I was an entrepreneur in the making. So that was kind of the early stages. And then after I walked away from that is when we got our first house, my wife and I, and getting that first house, I started off on this path where I just wanted to give my wife the nicest house that I could. And I didn't know anything about home ownership or fixing stuff and I was cheap. So I started doing stuff on my own and I taught myself everything that I needed to know as I'd come up against it. One, because if I tried to pay people for it, it was always disappointing the quality of work. And it was always disappointing that I had to pay so much money. So that kind of started that path. But ultimately, I discovered I was pretty good at it. And I actually enjoyed it. And it turned into taking on jobs for other people, small remodeling things here and there. And that grew into larger remodeling for other people and ultimately led me to starting my own remodeling business and getting my GC license. And then growing that business into something that it is today. I don't do any marketing and it's all word of mouth. And I put all of the effort that I put into everything and I'm experiencing that growth that I liked from the restaurant. And I'm realizing that there's another ceiling, but I'm that ceiling that I'm slowing myself down and I'm the bottleneck. And that kind of brings me to where I'm at, where I love real estate and I know the capabilities of it, but I also know that I can't give any more, and I've exhausted what I'm capable of. So it's time to start leveraging what I can to get some time back in my life.
0: That's great, Tyler. So let's talk about your first deal. So you have your live-in flip and then you also flip a property too?
1: So my first property actually turned into our rental. So we bought our first house. We fixed it up over the course of four or five years, put quite a bit of sweat equity into it. And then that turned into a rental when we bought the house that we're in now, which is our new primary. So there's probably a lot to unpack there with regard to all of the details of that house and how we funded this one.
2: So I just wanna make sure I've got the story here though. So you go to school, you get a really, really hard degree in bio and chemistry. And then you become a GC. I think the point that's most interesting is that you said you learned kind of the trade of becoming a general contractor by working on your own home. Did I understand that correctly?
1: Correct, correct. Yeah, I didn't have any formal training. It was something that I learned along the way and forced myself to get good at. That is awesome,
2: right? And like, Ashley, you've said this so many times is that getting your feet wet by doing something real estate related before you become an actual investor is like one of the best ways to get started. And you are like a prime example of that Tyler. Like you took a home remodel and turned it into a business, which is awesome.
1: I didn't know that I was doing that, but that's absolutely in practice. That's what happened. And having a real estate adjacent career now, like Jay Scott always says, it's really set me up to be able to utilize all of that that I've gained and really start putting it to work. So I
2: was just going to say, Ashley, for all the rookies, right, if you want to get good at rehabbing, you obviously have to get a degree in biochemistry before <laughs> uh, before you make that happen. So
1: Necessary steps for sure. <laughs> yeah.
0: I wanna talk about that shift from running your own business as a general contractor. When did it start to, you make that change? Where like, okay, I need to have more time for myself. I need to be less involved in the business and I need to start real estate investing. What made you decide? How did you even come about real estate investing? Was that from your first property?
1: Yeah. So it's interesting. I've always been super interested in real estate. I've always had Redfin and Zillow apps. Even when I lived in apartments, I'd drive around neighborhoods and look at the values and see the pictures and really get a sense of the value in having a house. And growing up, my dad, he would always buy houses that needed a lot of work. My mom and dad had four kids and they would buy a house, put a lot of work into it, live in it for quite a while, and then sell it and move into a nicer house. So house up. That was always the strategy. For him. So, not necessarily real estate investing, but pretty close, like 90% of what real estate investing is, where he wouldn't rent it out. He wouldn't hold it. He wouldn't flip it. And it was always just the primary houses. So, I kind of had that to lean back on. But, like you mentioned, getting the time back and running a business doing this, the reason what caused me to want to get that time back is we're having a kid. My wife and I, we decided to have a kid. We're six months pregnant and I can't keep burying myself with work. And I think that there's, no better way to gain time back than to leverage my skill set that I have with being able to fix houses and invest in real estate to get my time back, if that answers your question.
0: Yeah, yeah, that definitely does. And to kind of follow up on that, is what's like the next step? Because it sounds like you have all of the tools in place. I mean, you have the skill set, definitely. You've freed up some time for yourself to start finding deals. So, what's your next course of action to actually get your next deal?
1: So the next course of action, fortunately, I've put myself in a really good position with both my rental property and my current primary is I've tapped into the equity on both houses, I've gained a boatload of equity in both houses by virtue of self performing the work and doing it to a high level. So I can tap into that equity with uh, HELOC, a home equity line of credit, and start using that capital to start funding new investment properties and getting into ideally rentals, but being in an expensive market like Denver, it's tough to get into the BRRRR strategy, which is ideal for me at MLS pricing or at that higher price point, just because the ratios are so much different than your $20,000 properties that you're picking up, Ashley. Getting into a three or $400,000 house, you've really got to get it into an extremely high ARV to be able to get your money back out. So I'd love to start finding off-market deals just so that I can secure a better deal. And flips are certainly not out of the cards for me just because I've got the toolkit. I own a construction company. So I can start leveraging that to actually do the work and then figure out what the exit strategy is, whether it's a hold contender or if it's something that just needs to be flipped and take that capital into another property.
2: It's a great strategy. And I, I remember reading this book. I can't remember which book it was. I think it might've been Crushing It and Apartments.
0: With Brian Murray.
2: Yeah, I think it was that yeah. book. I think it was that one. But his strategy was flip one, flip one, hold one, right? So like for every- four properties, he's going to flip three and he's going to hold one. And that was kind of his process of generating these big chunks of cash, but also still being an actual real estate investor by holding some of these properties long-term. So it sounds like you can kind of approach your situation similarly. Now, you mentioned the price point about the houses being you know, $300,000. You have to get to a certain ARV for it to work. How are you actually financing these properties at such a high price point?
1: Yeah. So I've got a variety of options. I've made some really good connections with networking with both lenders and hard money lenders. And then I've also got, like I said, a HELOC on my rental property. We took that HELOC out before it became a rental property. So we've got a $100,000 HELOC on that property. We still have on top of that $200,000 in equity on that house. And then same situation with this house where we've got over $300,000 in equity. And I'll tap into this house for another HELOC. So I'll have in total a couple hundred thousand dollars of my own capital that I can deploy because I fixed up these houses, saved a bunch of money and the market appreciates like crazy here. So it can be a combination of things, which is nice. I don't feel like I'm pigeonholed into just one version of funding a property. So ultimately, I'd love to have private lenders over hard money lenders. But at the end of the day, you do what you need to do to get a deal done. So I'll take any kind of lending I need to.
0: I want to really break that down. So you have your first house as your primary residence. So was this, you got the HELOC before you moved to your next property?
1: I closed on that HELOC one day before I closed on my new house.
0: I mean, that is smart because you're going to get a way better interest rate with that HELOC than you would if it is an investment property. Exactly. In a HELOC, let's talk about that real quick. So you have a mortgage on the property and that extra equity Banks will give you a line of credit up to usually 85%, sometimes 90% of the appraised value of the property. So you can take that. And the way a line of credit works is you're only paying interest on that money once you pull that money out. So a mortgage, you're constantly making payments every single month, no matter what you're doing with the money, because you just get that lump sum up front. Where the line of credit, you can pull it off, purchase a property refinance, do your burr, and then you can pay it back. And then it's just sitting there. You're not paying any interest and it's just available for you. So, I mean, that is so awesome that you have it on two properties to choose from. And Tyler and I have talked before, and I honestly think he is one of the most prepared people ready to get into investing. He has so many tools in place. Just look at all of the different ways that he has access to money.
1: Yeah. And a couple of things on that note. The beautiful thing that I love about HELOCs is it's reusable. You pay it off and then you get that money back. It's not like doing a flip and you get that one chunk of change, you get to use it one time. The HELOC is available to you if you pay that off. So that's a huge thing that I love about HELOCs rather than like a cash out refinance or something like that. But obviously, getting a HELOC on your primary is the key so that you can get better rates. It's difficult to do that with the other properties. And then on your note about me being extremely prepared. I love that I've been able to talk to you and and been super lucky with the network that I've been able to create because all this time I've been doing this work and thinking, yeah, that's neat and everything. But I never had that extreme amount of confidence like, yeah, I can do this. Obviously, I'm doing it for myself and my own house and for my wife. But at the end of the day, how hard is it to translate that into investing in real estate and actually doing it for profit? So it's been cool seeing high level people like you being like, yeah, you can absolutely translate this into doing it for a living and not just for yourself. So I appreciate the confidence boost that I've gotten from just networking with people like you.
0: Well, thank you. That was very kind of you to say. But I want to go back to the HELOC real quick and then maybe we can move into more of that. But with the HELOC, a lot of times there's no closing costs either. So if you're putting a mortgage on the property, you know, you can be paying eight to $10,000 in closing costs, where a lot of times a HELOC, especially on a primary residence, you're not paying closing costs. And I've even seen banks that will cover the appraisal. You don't even have to pay for the appraisal on the property, too. So definitely something to check out on.
2: Really quick. Just, I want to make sure that we break this piece down to so like, how long do folks have to pay back that HELOC? Because if you remember, we had a guest on the show recently where it was Rich Kelly, right, where he bought his property because the house was being like foreclosed on or the bank was trying to take it back because they didn't pay back the HELOC in time. So like, what's the typical time frame that as a homeowner, you have to pay down that balance against the HELOC?
1: So mine is 10 years. I've got 10 entire years. So if I wanted to carry a balance on it, that whole entire 10 years, I could. Ultimately, I want to use it, pay it off, use it again, pay it off. So the cool thing about it is even at the end of that 10 years, there's always opportunities where if you've been a good client of that bank that gave you the HELOC and you're continually paying it off or paying them interest, you're a good client. They could potentially extend it or give you another one with the same terms. It's a really fluid thing that's flexible, but obviously it's predicated on treating it the right way and not just treating it like, oh, I have a credit card. I can rack up $100,000 worth of debt and I don't have to worry about it for 10 years.
0: Yeah, I have a HELOC too on actually an investment property, not my primary. And it was a five-year term and it actually just expired. And the loan officer sent me a text and I was just like, oh, can I renew it? And then a week later, he's like, you're all set. It's renewed. (laughs) And so it's for another five years now. So you get those really great relationships with bankers and it can be very, very easy and a smooth process working with these line of credits.
1: Yeah. I'll say it's surprisingly easy to get them when you've got the equity. I mean, the one that I did, there was no income verification. It was all on stated income. And I'm not advising that you go lie about your income so that you can get equity, but it's worth knowing people in the industry. And I found out about the banker that would give me that version of the HELOC from my lender who was helping me get the mortgage on this. So having a good lender that can refer me to other people in the industry, even if it's a product that he's not able to help me with is super powerful.
2: Lots of good information on the HELOC, and you see a lot of real estate investors leveraging that tool. So I'm glad we spent a little bit of time there. One thing I want to go back to, though, Tyler, is your transition, which seems like it happened pretty quickly. Maybe you can give us the timeline, but your transition from being a W-2 employee in the restaurant industry to being a full-blown entrepreneur doing the GC thing, like I guess walk us through that journey. Like, How long did it take, and at what point did you know that you were ready to walk away from your W-2 and work for yourself?
1: Yeah, so I wish I could say that it happened super quickly. It happened in a much longer time frame than looking back in retrospect I wish it would have, but I left restaurants let's say that was in 2016. And I knew that I didn't want to get back into a W-2 job at that point. And I'm the type of person that'll just kind of force myself to figure stuff out. I know that I've got enough drive behind me to succeed at whatever it is I'm putting my effort into. So when I left the restaurant, we had a house. We had a house payment. I was still working on the house. And it, it actually kind of coincided at a perfect time where I was learning a new trade, essentially. And I really prioritized fixing up my own house more than I did trying to find projects or other people to do it for. But then small projects started coming up where I worked with a designer for a little while, where she would just need help doing some stuff around her projects, hanging artwork, taking care of little things here and there. And all the while, I was gaining this experience on my own house. And then her clients would inevitably ask, "Oh, can you do maybe a bathroom refresh, or can you do this?" I didn't. I was like, "Oh, I just did that on my house, so yeah, I'll bite that off." And starting to do more and more for other clients. And then I branched out on my own after I realized that I have a lot of desire for this. I'm really good at this. I'm super detail oriented. So why don't I just make that what I do? So it kind of fell into place, maybe unintentionally, but then I started relating it to how much I realized I actually enjoyed houses and real estate and the market. And it kind of just fell into my lap after all the experience that I forced myself to have.
2: How long were you doing this on the side before you went full-time?
1: Yeah, so I went full-time, let's say 2016, 2015. We bought our house in 2013. So between 2013 and 2016, I was kind of doing that side stuff for people here and there. I wasn't crushing it financially because, I, like I said, I wasn't prioritizing it as a living. It was more of a means to making a cool house. But then I realized it could be a living and I started doing full-on remodels, whole homes, kitchens, basement finishes, that sort of thing. And that was kind of the eye-opener where I was like, oh, people trust me with $300,000 budgets on their house. I can do this for anybody. And then I created my own branding and business and really started to put a little more of a push behind me where the confidence grew. So that was about 2017, 2018 when I really got the confidence to start doing it on my own.
0: How did that impact your getting financing or have you talked with lenders even going forward as you're going to be self-employed? What are they looking for from you and have you had any obstacles with that?
1: So it was definitely interesting. We were able to, when I was working with the designer, I was getting paid. I actually started an LLC well before I ever intended to have one just for tax purposes. So I started an LLC so I would receive my checks, even though they were not weekly, bi-weekly, or even monthly sometimes. But I'd get them in that LLC just so that I could have a track record of some income. So that's what lenders are looking for. And then the flip side of that is my wife is a complete rock star and she brings the stability to our relationship where she's got a great job, a salary, she handles the health insurance. So, I mean, she's my saving grace in all of this. I'm the dreamer and she's the doer is the way that we see it. So. Yeah, lenders, fortunately, this year after I file taxes, it'll be my fifth year of the LLC being in business. So that's actually going to loosen a lot of the regulations because they either need two years of combined income for my LLC, and last year I did not crush it for taxes purposes. And then this year after I file, it'll be my fifth year so they can only take, or they only need to take one year of verified income from last year. So I'll be smooth sailing. I've got it scheduled for February 12th, the very first day that you can e-file your taxes. I want to get it all cleared up so that we can uh, hit the road.
0: That's awesome. Yeah,
2: that's awesome, man. Now. Tyler, people can't see this who are listening, but if you're on YouTube, you can see it, but you've got like a beautiful background and I'm super jealous. So it seems like you go like really, really high end on your finishes. I guess just kind of walk us through what your thought process is, your methodology on what kind of product it is you want to create, because some investors might want to go, you know, just kind of really middle of the road, just standard everything, but it seems like you're going a little bit more high scale. So just walk us through that.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, conventional knowledge always tells you not to be the nicest house on the block or not the nicest house in the neighborhood. But I've always kind of steered myself to target the nicest house in the neighborhood, at least with my primary houses. Because I know that if I find the nicest house in the neighborhood, and it's a true comp size-wise, bedroom-wise, all of that, I can probably finish it nicer than they did and get 15% more than what they sold for. So, I actually do try to be the nicest house within reason in a neighborhood, especially in Denver, because I know that the market supports it here. Buying a house for if it's a flip or if it's a rental, people are emotional people, and I don't want to over-improve something. But at the same time, Denver accommodates it where I can really put all of the quality and all of the time that I feel the house deserves and put really nice finishes in. Now, with a rental, there is somewhere that you need to draw the line where you're not putting in all of the Little things here and there that renters really don't care about. So I think that's something with my rental property being that it was a primary, it's probably overdone a little bit for renter's sake. But at the same time, one of the things that I picked up from another podcast was Tarl Yarber. He does flips in Seattle. And his mentality is kind of the same thing where if you fix it up to the nines and you take care of everything and you front load the renovations, you're kind of guaranteeing that there's minimal maintenance. You're guaranteeing that your CapEx is going to be offset for at least 10 to 15 years. So really, it maximizes my cash flow on the rental perspective. And in the meantime, on this house, it really just raises the ARV, which gives me more equity and a better HELOC.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I, I love Tarl too. He always gives such little golden nuggets.
1: Oh, he's, he's one of my idols as far as the podcasts go.
0: So I want to go back to your wife and let's bring her into the picture. And you mentioned her a couple of times. So what was it first like introducing her to like, let's get into real estate investing. I'm quitting my full-time job. How did all that take place? And then how has she motivated you or how has she supported you throughout this whole process?
1: I think support is like the name of the game with everything that you just said. She has been instrumental from the get-go. So we've been together for 12 years. We've been married for four years. So, I mean, she's seen everything that I've been a part of. She's seen the ups, the downs. So she has been really crucial with all of that. And the real estate talk, I've probably talked about it for eight years six, seven years easily, but it was something that she always was very hesitant to get on board with. And especially before we realized that we could create so much equity. And I always had this idea that every dollar I spend on a house needs to make me more than that dollar. So for me, it was always an investment, whether or not she was on board or whether or not I told her what my technique or my tactic was. So it took, honestly, until after we lived in this house for her to fully get comfortable. And I proved it to her firsthand that, hey, we can use and leverage our rental property. We can make great cash flow on that. And we had to actually do it in practice for her to finally understand that, oh, if we can just rinse and repeat and do that more, it took a lot of Conversations that were very hard. And ultimately, she just didn't like the risk. She didn't want to take risks of losing everything. And I said, There's no way. The worst case scenario is you lose a little bit. It's not like someone's going to be able to come and take our house away if it goes poorly. But now, I mean, fast forward to today, and I'd say the last six months or so for me and her, um, I've really been focusing on mindset and changing my perspective on things and just gaining more of a positive mindset she's right there with me. Every morning we start, we write 20 IM statements and positive affirmations. We read books together. We discuss them. It's Unlocked this part of our relationship that I honestly never knew we could have. So now we're just on the same wavelength with regard to real estate, with regard to the mindset. And she's obviously got the same intention where we want to get time. We decided to have a baby after 12 years. I mean, we were pretty patient. We decided to have a baby because we want to force ourselves to make the time. So now she's really ready and willing to put in the effort to change the mindset and reprioritize our life. So she's huge.
0: Could you give everyone just like two little pieces of advice if they're in the same situation, you know, trying to convince their partner, their spouse, is it sending them, having them listen to podcasts? Is it just sitting down with them? Is it showing them numbers? What would be one or two things that you highly recommend someone share with their partner to get them on board?
1: I think it's a matter of starting slow. Honestly, it's really easy to feel overwhelmed. And for all the listeners that are loving the podcast and you get really jazzed and you're doing all this stuff, if you're doing that without your spouse and then you come home and you spout off all this stuff that you're super excited for, it's overwhelming for a spouse that just isn't part of that yet. So starting small and having those conversations. And I also think identifying your goals both your individual goals, but your couple goals. If you've got a spouse, making sure that, hey, if they're content working at a job until they're 65 and counting on a pension, then maybe it's gonna be a harder conversation to have. And not to say that they can't shift away from that mentality, but it does take talking about numbers. And I think podcasts have been really big, finding guests that have been in a similar situation to us and seeing how they were able to break through to the other side and just repetitive effort instead of feeling like one conversation is going to do it. I'm going to talk to my wife and she's going to be on board. Ultimately, you got to break down that wall over time. So a little bit at a time, be gentle, be patient and realize that you're doing it for your joint future and they'll come around.
2: I totally agree with the concept of kind of making it a slow burn, right? And understanding that it'll take a little bit of time depending on your spouse's personality, their disposition, all those things. It was kind of similar for me too, right? When I told my wife, my fiance girlfriend at the time that I want to start investing in real estate, it was like, oh, I just read this book and here's some cool things that I learned. Or I just listened to this podcast and what a cool thing that I just, or hey, I just went to this meetup and she was like, wait, you're going to a place with a bunch of random strangers to talk about what? But you just kind of pepper those things in and over time they get a little bit more comfortable. So I love that advice, man. Tyler, I want to hit what you're working on now. What's next for you? You've got these two beautiful homes, you've rehabbed them. What's next in the pipeline for you?
1: Yeah, so next in the pipeline, I kind of touched on it with taxes and February 12th kind of being my unleashing date. I really have been getting super familiar with what my criteria is and what I want to be taking on because when you start having some success with especially renovations and my business and all of that, opportunities fall on my plate that I don't always want to take or need to take. And I've been identifying what those opportunities are and figuring out, are they going to get me closer or farther away from my goals? So really getting that laser focus of that. So honestly, I'm turning down more projects than I used to with the business so that I can make sure that I've got the time to put into the real estate. And then finding, I mean, we're on the hunt, hopefully before this baby comes, I want to have another property under our belt, whether it's a flip or a rehab, just something because I want that momentum. I wanna get that traction. So we're not trying to force it, but we are making offers. We've been making offers using hard money lenders, offering seller financing to certain homeowners. So really run in the gamut of whatever technique we can find and just get a property going.
0: Do you wanna give us a little breakdown of some of the offers you are doing? Are any of them in negotiations, anything close to being under contract?
1: That would be nice. It's cool because like I said, networking, I've got quite a few people who now that they know what I do and know what I'm interested in, they find things that might be interesting to me and then they send it off to me. And if it works for a deal, then yeah, absolutely. You are in my business as a real estate agent. So write that offer. Let's go in at these numbers. Let's see what happens. And that is the wild thing in Denver. I think Anson Young was on just recently on the OG Bigger Pocket show, and he's from Denver. He was saying there's something like 19,000 real estate agents in Colorado. And you've got to think that a lot of those have investors on their deck. So you're competing with so many people when it's an MLS listing. And that doesn't keep me from throwing my numbers at them and offering, but it's wild to see how standard convention just doesn't apply so much anymore, where if you put a deadline on a contract, chances are, you're not even going to get that response. So we put an offer in over asking price, all cash on a property. I think it was a $500,000 purchase price. ARV was in the high sevens. So we put our offer in day of sight unseen. We didn't even go look at it. It fit my criteria. It was super similar to both of my current houses where it's a a brick ranch from the fifties. I love those. So we put our offer in, we never heard a thing from the real estate agent. So it's becoming more and more clear that I've got to find another way to get deals into my pipeline. And that's where finding off-market properties is going to need to be the, the focus.
2: You kind of hit on what I was going to ask you next about diversifying your deal flow. But before we go there, is there at any point, Tyler, where you say, all right, Denver's too hot of a market for me to be successful in? let me go somewhere else where there's a little less competition. Has that crossed your mind at all?
1: It has crossed my mind. And I think a couple of reasons why that's something I don't feel like I want to do, at least initially, until I prove that Denver really isn't habitable for me and my investing strategy. I think that I've got such a huge asset at my disposal being able to self-perform or at least having my business and my subcontractors go perform this work. I can't imagine being an investor that's paying retail for all this. Obviously, there's a a lot of you guys that are doing that and you're still making money. But if I can stack the cards in my favor and maybe I can fudge the numbers a little bit more and pay a little bit more because I spend less. So I feel like Denver, being that I know it so well, it's my own backyard, it's where I've grown up my whole entire life, it would be most ideal to stay here. And I have full trust in myself and my capabilities that Denver's not too scary for me. I've got a tool belt full of different tools that I can utilize here. I just need to start taking them out of the belt.
2: And I think that's the critical point, Tyler, about because you're in an an expensive market. Right. And for folks that live in expensive markets, they always kind of immediately think that they have to go elsewhere. But it's not so much about can I invest in this market or is this a good market to invest in? It's what's the correct strategy to apply to this market? Right. Because I'm in SoCal and there's plenty of investors that are making millions and millions of dollars investing in real estate in California. Right. But it's like, what's the strategy that makes the most sense for that market? So I love your response there. I want to go back to the deal finding. So you, you said the MLS is really hot. What additional kind of strategies are you looking at using to help with the deal flow?
1: Yeah, so I'm getting more familiar with lists, and I think that there's a lot to unpack there. Obviously, like I said, I've always had the Zillow app and the Redfin app, and I've always kind of relied on that methodology. So that's my comfort level of, you know, let's find a house on the MLS. That's how we found both of our houses, and it worked, but that was not easy. So now I'm starting to identify other techniques like driving for dollars instituting some of the apps and programs and there's a variety of them. So it's almost kind of overwhelming when you start getting into like batch leads and all of the off-market lists and how to stack them and everything. So I'm trying to digest all of that right now so that I can start getting into that. But then, yeah, finding a comfort level with just approaching people that aren't expecting you to be approaching them, cold calling people, knocking on doors, getting out of my comfort zone there. I've been familiarizing myself a lot with that method. So it'll be a matter of continuing to learn more about it and then just pulling the trigger on cold calls.
0: I think an important thing to point out is that even though you are getting defeated in putting in offers on the MLS, you are still doing it you are still putting in offers because I think there's a lot of people that sit there and like, I know they'll never get accepted. All the houses are selling way more than I can offer, but you are still out there because even if you don't get an offer accepted on the MLS, that experience of writing out those offers is awesome and you're not gonna get that anywhere else. Putting down like, okay, so I know the seller is selling because of this. I know that I have this tool in my belt. I can offer this. I can not have a contingency. I can waive an inspection learning how to tailor your offers based on the property and the seller, just that practice of putting in those offers and learning how to take rejection. I mean, getting all of those rejections, then you'll have no problem sending out low ball offers, but just make sure your offers work for you. And yeah, so I think that's great. You're still doing that. And then you're also learning how to find deals other ways using different sources.
1: For sure. I have a super high threshold for denial. I mean, I told you how long it took me to get married to my wife. I mean, I'm used to it. So it's just something where if it means enough to you, you'll jump through the fire for it and you'll get better. You're not failing when it doesn't go your way. You're learning. And if you take those lessons and apply it to the next offer, you're going to get better and better. And eventually it's going to work out. So the persistence is definitely key and not looking at it as a failure so much as a opportunity to learn from it.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's a great way to put it.
2: Ash, have you done any like direct mail campaigns to get deals?
0: No. I mean, if I drive by a house, I'll write down the address and I'll send a letter, but I've never actually gotten a deal from doing that. But I did just sign up for PropStream and you use that, correct? We
2: do. Yeah. So actually, because I invest in Joshua Tree as well, Tyler, and it's kind of heating up as a market for short term rentals and a lot of the stuff that's on the MLS, same thing. It's going like over asking price. So we just sent out our first batch of postcards last week. And we had our first phone call. We were like, oh, super excited. So we're going out there this weekend to go take a look at it. But as you get more comfortable and familiar as a real estate investor, you feel more confident kind of going with some of these off-market strategies. So I guess my point to the listeners is it's totally okay to start with the MLS and maybe you get your first one or two deals from there. And then eventually you can kind of graduate to some of the more advanced or sophisticated techniques for finding deals.
0: And one thing I recommend too as a rookie is that focus on one way first and learn that instead of trying to do like... 50 different ways of getting deals, like doing direct mail, doing driving for dollars, you know, having realtors on the MLS or all these different ways that you can do it. Focus on one at first, and then once you get done, move on to a next one and then incorporate both of them but it will be so much easier to put a system in place. Like, okay, every single day I'm getting emails from a realtor, on the MLS, this is my criteria. She's only sending me deals on these. My routine is to go in, log in, look at these properties. Do they meet my criteria? Check, 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 no. Okay, you have that deal flow done. You have that ready. This is how I'm sending out offers. Then move on to your next thing. What's your next thing? Every Sunday I'm packing up the kids and we're doing two hour drives around town. Like I'm picking my route. I'm doing this section of town, then this section of town. <laughs> Get those systems in place because it will drive you crazy and you won't be able to track things and things will pass you by if you are trying to use every single deal source strategy there is, especially at first and doing it on your own.
1: It gets very overwhelming and hectic, I feel like, when you've got all of that going on and you feel like you can take a deal from anywhere. I think that's absolutely clutch, finding that funnel that Brandon always talks about and get people... I've got wholesalers that email me. I've got agents that email me and figuring out the analysis and the numbers, figure out if it works for you and then move forward. But yeah, when you're trying for every technique that's under the sun, none of them are gonna work if you're just trying a little bit everywhere.
2: Rookies, 2024 is the year to start protecting your rental properties with an LLC, but you don't have to do all the paperwork and filing yourself. Head over to corporatedirect.com slash biggerpockets to schedule a free 15-minute consultation with an incorporating specialist. Mention Real Estate rookie and get a $100 discount on your formation. That's corporatedirect.com slash
5: biggerpockets. Whether you need to buy or sell or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. This show is sponsored by Airbnb.
4: Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: So Tyler, let's break down one of your deals and hear the numbers on it.
1: You got it. So I'll probably use a rental property instead of the current primary, if that's what you want.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Let's do that.
1: Do you want me to just give you everything or?
0: Yeah, the numbers. We love the numbers.
1: Perfect. So we bought it in uh, 2013. We bought it for $215,000. Used FHA loan because it was owner occupy and we put three and a half percent down. And then between 2013 and 2017 is when we lived in it. We rehabbed it over time. What's funny about rehabbing it over time is obviously it all costs money, even when you're doing it yourself. You still got to pay for materials, you still got to hire out some stuff. We didn't even really know it, but we started house hacking. We would get renters and we were like, okay, we need to pay for the backyard. We need sod and we need a patio and we need sprinkler system. We we're like, let's rent out one of those four bedrooms. So we got a renter and we didn't even identify that this was such a powerful strategy back then. We were just like, How I mean, could
0: you?" we're 40 minutes into the episode. How could you not even mention this? until
1: now? <laughs> I'm telling you, it, it took a while. I'm pretty dense. It took a while for me to realize the power of all of this. So we got a renter and started making uh, rental income off of one room, and then we would start putting that money into the renovations. But I think we probably spent, over the four years that we lived there, probably spent about $40,000. And that's with me self-performing. That's obviously not retail. If it was to be paid out all in one chunk, it probably would have been upwards of 75. Obviously, self-performing saved a significant amount of money. So there's a huge benefit just personally to be able to self-perform and do it to the quality that I knew I wanted.
0: And then what was when you guys decided to move out and you have your appraisal to get the HELOC on it, what did it appraise for?
1: Yeah, so in 2017 is when we moved out and we had an appraisal, and I think it appraised for about $440,000. Like I said, that was in 2017. It was enough to get a $100,000 HELOC, so we had that much equity that we had improved. And obviously, this is also Denver, where it appreciates rapidly. So year over year, your appreciation is awesome. But then forced appreciation and forced equity also piggybacked on that. So it's kind of a combination of everything. So it appraised at like 415, 420. And then we got our renters in pretty much right as we found this house and right as we moved out with the HELOC and armed ourselves with all that money to do it on another house. But today that property it would sell tomorrow for 525, 550, and it would probably go over asking price and have multiple offers.
0: Wow, and you had 250 into it, all said and done, 255.
1: Yeah, so there's another interesting story about that. That 40 minutes in, I probably should have mentioned also. Our first renters had a fire at the house. <gasps> no. Yes. So here's our first experience with a rental. We think it's all fine and well. We're making good money. Seven months after getting our renters in the house, they call us and it's the middle of November, winter in Denver, and they are like, it smells like an electrical fire. And I'm like, oh no. So we go over and we check it out. There's seven or eight fire trucks in front of the house. It's all walled off. And we look in the window and apparently there was an electrical fire. There's an unfinished part of the back room and they overloaded some circuits and the kids were playing video games in an unconditioned space. They had three space heaters all at once. So like a nightmare situation for a landlord. And they kept flipping the breaker back on, which caused a small electrical fire in the attic. So the firefighters come in and they rip down the ceiling from the main space. Drywall and insulation goes everywhere. Damage all the tiles in the kitchen. And it's funny because that was the one part of the house that we didn't remodel was the kitchen. So when we moved out, it wasn't fully done to the nines. It was done to the sevens. Every other part of the house had been touched. But we were like, we're out of money. And I don't want to keep pouring it into this house because I know we've peaked at our ARV. So we were like, cool, we'll rent it as is. And then I spoke that into the universe. I was like, man, I wish I would have had the opportunity to remodel the kitchen because I always wanted to. The universe listened. And ultimately, we had to deal with insurance for 13 months. We had to get our renters out of there, terminate their lease, And I renovated the kitchen over the course of 13 months. Fortunately, we were getting rental reimbursement the whole time. So it wasn't something where financially we were crippled. However, they would forget for three months at a time to pay us. So we did have to handle that. Long story short, I finally got to do the kitchen that I always wanted. And I was able to do it with insurance because I'm a licensed GC. So I self-performed everything. We still got what retail was for all of the renovations. So it was a huge blessing in disguise. It was free money since I was self-performing the work. So I did the kitchen just the way I always wanted. I took out a wall, I put up a beam, and now it's like to the nines. So that was a huge opportunity. And that's why, like I said, the ARV today is five fifty or above. And we were able to increase our rental amount off of that as well when we get new renters in.
0: That was gonna be my question. What did the rent increase to?
1: Yeah. So before the kitchen and the fire, we were renting for 2400 And then after the renovations of the kitchen, and we went beyond the kitchen too. I put in new floors. And again, it was a personal house, but we raised it to 2850 and just this week we're re-signing for another one year lease with our tenants, but we're raising it to twenty nine ninety-three. So almost three grand a month. And our mortgage payment is fourteen hundred dollars.
0: No way. That's awesome. Wow.
1: And like I said, there's no capex. I took care of everything. It doesn't need a furnace. It doesn't need appliances. There's no maintenance because I know that I'm like, I was in the crawl space, sealing all the duct work. I went above and beyond. I replaced the sub floors. I replaced everything. Cause it's going to be a house that'll perform for me for decades.
0: Yeah. That's really great to hear.
1: Yeah.
2: I, I want to make sure I, I got the kind of financing piece down. So you bought it with an FHA at three and a half percent down, and then you funded the actual rehab you were doing by renting out the rooms within the house.
1: That's genius. We offset the rehab, yeah.
2: That's genius, man. Like, what a great way to do like a live-in flip and really fund it with very little money out of pocket. I love that. I love that approach, man. I don't know if I've really met anyone that's like combined a house hack with the live-in flip at the same time to kind of like fund both of them. So you you might be the first person on the Real Estate Rookie podcast to do this, Tyler, for, for all we know, man.
1: I had no idea. <laughs> Honestly, it I stumbled upon it and it worked out really well. We made the best of it.
2: You got to give it a name or something like the I don't even know, man. The flip house, the flipping house hack, the house flip hack. I don't know, man. You got to come I'll up with it something. I'll
1: call it the make your wife happy strategy. <laughs> there you That's go. all I was out to do, man. I was just There you go. My goal was always just to give my wife a nice house cuz cuz I thought she deserved it. But then turns out it's super lucrative.
2: Man, we we gotta put you in touch with like the Bigger Pockets book publishing team because if we put that out, the Make Your Wife Happy book, that's like a New York Times
1: bestseller. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's not a cookbook. Awesome, man. Well, I
2: love the first deal, Tyler. It sounds like it turned out really, really well, man. And for the listeners, hopefully there's some instruction there that you can follow. There's some ways to get creative with getting that first deal done. Like I love the way you finance it, man. So I want to take us to the next segment, which is the rookie request line. Today's Rookie Request Line, for the listeners, uh, if you guys want to get your questions featured on the show, give us a call at 8885-ROOKIE. We might play your question on the show, and you can get an answer from myself, Ashley, and the guests. But Tyler, today's question.
4: Hi, my name is David. I'm from Salt Lake City. Currently, I have a few rental units that I pay off 50% of the equity. My question is, should I keep the money in the equity of the home, or should I do cash out refinance and keep it as reserve? And the other question is, what's the percentage of equity do you guys like to have in your investment properties?
1: Thank you. I think that's a really great question. And as you can see from my story, I love equity. I think that equity is one of the most powerful things that you can get. And being that they're rental properties, Ashley touched on it earlier, where she was able to take out HELOCs on her rental property, you might not get as great of terms on a HELOC, but if you can find a lender or a bank that'll lend on the equity, you said he's got multiple properties. I think that that's a bulletproof strategy to be able to rinse and repeat and reuse that funding. And I think cash out refinances have a time and a place. And honestly, that's what I did to pay off my HELOC. So I did a cash-out refinance on this property to pay off that other HELOC. So I think there's a lot of value, but understanding that a cash-out refinance is a one-time deal. You get that money, you use it, it's gone. There's a big benefit to going the HELOC route in my eyes.
0: Yeah, I have to agree with that. And for the percentage of equity to have in yours, I always like at least 25%. So never a loan to value that's more than 75% of the property. And I've only been able to get HELOCs on investment property through the commercial side. So definitely check out commercial lenders to get that. And I'm actually working on one now, hopefully closing in the next couple of weeks where it's actually a line of credit on two properties. So it will kind of be a portfolio HELOC where it's going to have the two properties as collateral. And then I'm having one big HELOC instead of two separate ones any ways I can minimize the amount of loans and paperwork I have to sign, I will group as much together and do it at once as possible. So yeah, thank you, Tyler, for sharing that. And to go into our next segment, it's kind of like a mindset segment here where we want to touch on mindset. But first, I need to hear the cop story. Oh, no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this has to do with the rental property when we lived in it there was actually an instance where I experienced a break-in at my house while I was home in broad daylight. It was something where a couple of people broke into my house, and I had no idea what was going on. I heard voices in my house, and I was like, that's not right. There's no one supposed to be here right now. So I am a gun owner, a responsible one who trains and knows a lot about how to handle that situation. So my first instinct was, what in the hell are you doing in my house? Confront them, and then realize I had no idea what their intentions were. So so get to where my guns are, hold these guys at gunpoint. And all the while it took a minute for it to click. Like there's people in my house and I have no idea why. And then they started bolting out of my backyard. So they're going through the house because I'm between them and the door. They go out of my house. And I'm like, well, problem isn't solved. I don't want to just let them go do whatever it is they're trying to do. Cause I've got neighbors who are single moms. They have young kids. I've got elderly neighbors. So I follow them. I follow them over the fence. I wouldn't advise doing this, but I follow them over the fence all the while I have a gun. I don't want to shoot anyone. You know, I'm not trying to do that. But at the same time, I'm not just going to let this go exist into the rest of the neighborhood. So my neighbor overhears it. I get them down finally in the backyard, not my backyard, my neighbor's backyard, get them down and tell my neighbor to call the cops. He calls the cops. Within seconds, we hear sirens on both sides, front and back. Turns out these people actually stole a car earlier in the day. There was a kid in that car. So they kidnapped a child inadvertently. And they took this car. So the city that they stole the car from was like 30 minutes away. But the mom left her phone in the car. So they were tracking, track my iPhone. So they roughly knew where they were. So like every jurisdiction that they passed through was on their trail, but hadn't yet found them. So all those cops were looking for them. And then the the police get a phone call that there's a homeowner with a gun holding people at gunpoint. So now there's a whole new batch of cops that are like, cool, we should check that out. Long story short, there's like 40, 45 cop cars that are in front of my house, in the backyard, cops in plain clothes, jumping over fences, dogs, canines, everything, the whole nine. And fortunately, it it didn't turn into something. But they're both in prison now. Nobody got hurt. And it's just... It still blows my mind, but it ended really, really well considering.
2: Tyler, you have to have maybe like the most interesting real estate journey ever. Your first rental burns down. You got like these crazy criminals. But I think the moral of the story is, is that even with all of that, you're still cash flowing like 3000 bucks a month on that house. So it's all worth it, right?
1: There's no bad juju on that house. I think at the end of the day, relating that story to maybe a real estate or a mindset thing was the reason it went well is because I was prepared. I was prepared for it. It didn't catch me off guard. It wasn't something where I had no idea what to do. I prepared myself. I thought about that scenario 25,000 times in my head before it ever happened. So once time came, snap to you, do what you've told yourself you would do in this scenario. So applying that to real estate or any deal that you get into is understand that things could go south, but that doesn't mean it's the end of it. You've got tools at your disposal to figure out how to get out of it.
0: That's great. I love how you tied that <laughs> into mindset.
1: I can't just go on a rant about all my weird stories from my life without making it relevant <laughs> to listeners. <laughs> oh man.
0: Okay. So on top of that, what are two, three mindset pieces of advice you can give our listeners? So you talked a little bit about I am statements, maybe clarify exactly what that is.
1: Yeah. So about six months ago, I really started paying attention to mindset in a very directed fashion instead of just saying I should be happier, I should be more positive or whatever and hoping it happens or just listening to a podcast and thinking, yep, that'll fix my problems. Realizing that there's got to be daily consistent action towards that goal. And the goal for me was just becoming more positive and mindful and having a better perspective. So the I am statements that I was talking about every single day I wake up and I kind of have this routine where I write out 20 I am statements. And what those are is you think about what you want in your life, both personally and wealth wise, health wise, professionally, all of that. And you write it down in a present tense. So for instance, one of mine is I am creating a legacy. I am networking with top tier performers because I am one. So it really builds a lot more self-confidence and takes away the negative self-talk that all of us are guilty of. I was certainly no stranger to all of that and the lack of confidence catches up to you. So that is one really good technique. And another really good technique that I think worked with me is making sure that you're intaking a variety of sources of positive content. Because like I said, if you listen to one podcast and you think it's going to change your life, or you listen to one book, it's not one thing and then you wait for it to take place. It's everything around you needs to start becoming what you want it to be. And the positive source of content, I even took that to Instagram. I stopped following a lot of accounts that I would followed for years that were just a waste of time or things that people weren't doing the same thing that I was doing. So I I didn't feel like I could connect with them following the right people and just gaining insight to other people's success really fired me up and made me want to do that. So doing it with other people also helps. My wife does the same thing. We read books together, like I mentioned, and it's powerful once your community and once your network is kind of on the same wavelength, doing the same thing.
0: Tyler, I love that you said that because this morning I was actually thinking about how you said that fill yourself with positive stuff, keep that around you, keep that content around you. And today I was thinking, I was really reflecting on the podcast and I thought, wow, Tony and I are so lucky that all we get to do is interview people about positive stuff. Like every single episode is exciting. It's like success stories and there are struggles, there are obstacles, but like, Everybody learns to overcome them and shares them. And I think we're so lucky that we're not newscasters that (laughs) share bad news constantly that we get to experience the joy and the excitement. And you are so right about that. Bringing in the positive content really, really can help you with that mindset shift. And it is important to learn how to overcome struggles and stuff like that, for sure. But I really like that you said that. That's a great piece of advice.
2: The added benefit is like, as you start to spend more time with people, you guys start to get in sync. And Ash, I don't know if you've noticed, but this is the first episode where we're actually dressed the same. Right. So for the folks you that are on YouTube, I wear a black shirt almost every episode we record and actually just like subconsciously has picked up on that. Now we're both in the black teams today.
0: Well, after I put it on today, like a couple hours after I had it on this morning, I was thinking I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to match Tony. But I had a plan that thought of it until like a little bit later. But yeah.
1: Tony, the fact that you mentioned that, I think that there's a really cool thing when you start getting it from a variety of sources, when your circle of people are talking about it the same way, your Instagram is talking about it, your books are talking about it, you start seeing these common threads through everything that you've surrounded your life with, whether it's the people or the social media or the books, and it's really cool and it gives you this feeling of being able to graduate kind of away from that and be like, cool, now I get to go focus on something else. And that I feel really lucky to be in the place where I feel that all of those threads are connecting and Brandon Turner's analogy of building multiple bridges and how that never works because you always fail at getting where you're trying to go. And I feel like I've focused a ton on building one bridge in the mindset direction and now that it's, I fully feel like I'm surrounded by it, it gives me the ability to go focus on another bridge because I feel like I'm done building that bridge or at least pretty close.
2: Yeah, I love that. And I guess just one last thought on that, right? The people that you surround yourself with is so important. And we talked about this a lot too, right? As you become more ingrained in the world of real estate, you're naturally going to start just spending more time with other real estate investors. And you have to make a decision as a newbie is if you want to be super successful, that might mean you're spending a little less time with the people that aren't doing real estate. And that's something that I picked up on early. So for me, it's always kind of been my goal to help involve the people that I care about the most in the real estate business as well, right? Like obviously my wife is my partner in a short-term rental business. We forced our son to go with us to our short-term rentals and help set those up. My wife's cousin is one of our partners. My brother-in-law is working with me on some wholesaling stuff. So like it's trying to bring in people that you care about so that as you start to grow and you start to elevate yourself, you're kind of bringing them up with you as well. So random thought from Tony for today. But on that note, random question time for you, Tyler, we want to finish off the episode with a few random questions. You've got a lot of experience redesigning and fixing homes. And I think the fix and flip is always kind of that carrot that kind of dangles in front of the face of a would-be real estate investor. What are some pitfalls that you feel a new would-be flipper might make that you can advise them against or give them that kind of insight so they can prevent that mistake from happening?
1: Overspending and over-improving, I think, is something that is really easy to fall into, especially if you're not experienced in performing the work and estimating your rehab costs accurately before you just start pulling triggers on everything that you think looks nice, because that stuff adds up quickly. As anyone that's experienced knows, those rehab budgets can get away from you pretty quick if you're just going for what looks good. So make sure you know your numbers and make sure you don't over-improve a space and find value out of everything. Make connections with contractors and secure yourself a better deal by working with them on multiple projects. There's a lot to be said about wasting money when you don't have to on a flip.
2: And Bigger Pockets has a great book on estimating rehab costs. Just Google it. There's tons of good reviews on that one. But Tyler, I guess just like your 30-second count of Piece of advice. How do we accurately estimate rehab costs as a new investor? Right? Like, if I've never done this before, what do I need to do to make sure I get as close to being on target as I can?
1: It's funny, there are so many assets online to help with that, both the book, like you said, but there's also different costs per market and coming to find out even if you've never done the rehabs or even if you've never had it done on your house or flipped a house. I mean, there's so many websites that you can use to help you estimate what the average in your neighborhood is based on the zip code, based on the square footage. So I would highly advise at least just getting started with that. And I mean, shoot, at the end of the day, if you're curious what a floor costs to replace, call a hardwood flooring company. Even if you don't have hardwoods at your house, even if you don't have a project, even if you just want to get familiar Cold call a contractor and say, hey, what does it cost to get a floor done? And honestly, that stuff gets to be more and more familiar so that your estimate is just like with anything. The more practice and the more effort you put into learning about it, the easier it'll be. I mean, it's hard for me still to estimate rehab costs at face value until I sit down and break it all down for client remodels based on the price per square foot of this, that, and the other. So, I mean, I don't know that there's a tried and true method, but just practice and familiarize yourself with what it costs in your market because it varies so much.
0: That's great advice. Thank you. So for my random question, I want to know about college. Okay. So you went to college, you're going to be a doctor. Do you regret it? And what advice do you have for someone that's maybe like, I went to college, I spent all this money on the degree, like I have to stay in this or else I've wasted all of that money. What kind of went through your thought process there?
1: So I don't regret it at all. I think... One of the major benefits of going to college and getting these very difficult to get degrees, I mean, I can't tell you anything about chemistry or biology right now because I'm so far removed from it and it's out of practice. our next
0: segment. We are going to do a quiz. (laughs)
1: If we have any organic chemistry segments, I quit. I wouldn't change it for anything because if nothing else, college taught me that I have the capacity to learn and the capacity to do things that are really crazy difficult. And I think that that was a huge takeaway. And Ultimately, could I have gotten a different major that would have set me up to be more successful more quickly? Maybe. But at the same time, I was young. I had no idea what I was going to do. And, and unfortunately, I'm not one of those prodigy 22-year-old guys that are on these podcasts that are blowing it out of the water with hundreds of units. I didn't have the capacity to figure that out early enough. And I think a lot of people find themselves struggling with the same thing when they're that young. So I experienced a lot of life through college and after college, and I wouldn't change that whatsoever. Do I think college was necessary? Would I advise people, you have to go to college? Not necessarily. If it's for you, then absolutely give it a shot. But if school isn't for you, don't feel like that's something that's required. No one's asking me if I have degrees when I'm applying for loans. No one's asking me, what did I study in school? It's not an industry that cares or puts any weight on that. So Could go either way.
0: I really like that answer. Thank you. Because I went to school for accounting, but I actually I use my accounting degree a lot in bookkeeping and taxes and keeping track of things. so
1: should be reaching out to you with numbers questions.
0: Well, <laughs> someone who wants to go to college, then go for something that can help you in your real estate business, a different tool that maybe like taking a real estate course wouldn't exactly give you. Tony, what did you go to college for? I
2: actually got my degree in world dance, so has nothing to do. No, I'm totally kidding. (laughs) I got my degree in business management, so very basic.
0: So that helps you too.
2: Super pertinent. Yeah. (laughs) Smart. But I got a minor in world dance, so no, no, I'm totally
1: kidding.
0: Well, we better start seeing some TikTok videos. That's all I got to (laughs) say. So we have another new segment today. You know, Tony and I are just coming up with all these good stuff for you guys. So we are going to highlight a rookie rock star each week. So today we want to highlight Lily Kay. She's in the Facebook Real Estate Rookie Group, and she just got her sixth property under contract with a 70% loan to value of a good burr. So congratulations, Lily, on that. That is really awesome. Well, Tyler, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell everyone where they can find out some more information about you yes. and where they can reach you?
1: So my MySpace handle is, um, <laughs> if we can if we can still access those, that's probably the best way to get a I'm hold of me. i start
0: Googling it now. Oh, good.
1: I apologize right now for what you'll find. So, so being a general contractor, I don't find a ton of time to be in front of the computer, so I'm not super active on anything except for Instagram. I do find quite a bit of value from Instagram, so I kind of focus on that one. But you can find me at Tyler Madden, just like it sounds. I got in early and I got my name. So that's probably the best place to find me. My business name is Laurelis, L-A-U-R-E-L-L-E-S-S. And you're probably saying that's not a word. And it's just to piggyback on the thought that went into that. I don't know if you're familiar with the phrase sitting on your laurels or resting on your laurels, where essentially it's just being satisfied with good enough being good enough. That's totally the contrary of the way that I run my business, where I put so much effort into everything that I do, where I always try and find a better outcome. And that's where the name came from. I don't have laurels to rest on. So Laureless. that is my website, com.
2: Love it.
0: That's really creative. That's cool.
2: We found Tyler's MySpace. So we're going to link to that in the show notes as well. So we
1: got yes. some... Uh... <laughs> You know the password? Because I've been trying to get into that thing for years.
0: No, we'll have our tech guy hack into it. (laughs) Well, Tyler, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, It was really great to have you and talk to you. Of course,
1: you guys. I really appreciate it. It has been my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So make sure you guys check out the Real Estate Rookie Facebook group and join there. Make sure you answer all of the questions, including that you agree to the rules or else the moderators will not let you in. And make sure you check out our new Saturday episodes called the Rookie Reply, where we are answering your guys' questions. So thank you guys so much for listening. I'm Ashley Kerr at Wealth From Rentals and he's Tony Robinson at Tony J. Robinson.